0: The Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Today's guest is the world renowned organizational psychologist Adam Grant of the University of Pennsylvania. He's authored several best selling books, has an amazing podcast, and if you haven't checked out his TED Talks online, check them out. They give some great insight as to how to be a better leader, boss, and ultimately just a better, more empathetic, compassionate person, all of which I think is um, something that the culinary industry and the chef industry at large needs to pay attention to, how to be a better chef. And that's why I wanted Adam on, to get some different insights as to how those that are in the culinary world or those that are not. I think this is applicable to just about any field where you are manager of people, how to be better at your job, at managing people. Because I often say to my own cooks and chefs, being a chef has nothing to do anymore about teaching people how to cook. It's about how do you manage people? How do you deal with the stress? How to build a better organization? Ultimately, that translates into the best customer experience. And I don't think that there's a lot of culinary books out there. Certainly not cooking schools. I graduated in cooking school, and all I learned was how to cook. And it's a one-sided affair because the dynamics and the changing variables in a stressful situation as a kitchen don't really prepare you about how to be a great chef. There's a lot to discuss about this, but more often than not, the really good restaurants are going to have a system based on a brigade system and more often than not, those that become your managers, the sous chefs and the chef de cuisines and ultimately maybe your executive chef, they got to that position because they were really good at cooking. Really good at cooking really good at taking orders, really good at organizing your station and your mise en place does not translate into making other people very good cooks. The road, again, to being a great chef is littered with people that were super talented at cooking. And today, more than ever, being a cook and being a great chef has almost nothing to do with the actual cooking of it all because you can make a great recipe and an amazing dish, but if you don't have people that want to execute it day in, day out, With integrity, when your back is turned, it's all for naught. So I'm excited to have Adam on. Just a caveat and a note, this was my first podcast I've ever done without actually talking to someone in front of me. Adam called in from Pennsylvania. So it's a bit awkward for me. I'm always going to be honest with you guys. Uh, I am really trying hard to not talk so much. Again, ironic because I'm just talking in this intro quite a bit, but I was really having a hard time because I need to have that facial recognition. I need to know when to talk. And as I learn how to be a better listener, this is something that I constantly am uh, grading myself on. And this is honestly how I became a better cook by being sort of brutally honest with my shortcomings. So this was something that I want to get better at because having phone interviews is something I'll probably have to do more of. But the fact of the matter is, it's not very easy. So spoke to Adam, but it, our conversation quickly turns to him asking me questions. And I was happy to answer them probably too long. But um, this is our conversation with Adam Grant, who gives some insights, I think really valuable insights, how to be a better leader and what we can do to be better chefs in the industry. And again, if you're not in the culinary industry, there's a lot to take from this uh, and glean from as well. So here's Adam Grant, and I will end the pod with a couple insights and notes about some other stuff going on. So without further ado, here is Adam Grant. Thank you so much. So I got a text from adam probably like a couple months ago saying i didn't quite understand it was pretty cryptic like hey if i call you um it's good morning america on the line and uh something something paying it forward and i was like well adam of course like happy to help out with anything i had no actually no idea when you actually called that you guys were recording for good morning america so um, oh, no that was crazy can you explain to everyone what were you doing so I learned about this exercise maybe a
1: dozen years ago. It's called the Reciprocity Ring. Uh, It was invented by Wayne and Cheryl Baker. And the idea is that we're all capable of helping other people in ways that benefit them a lot, but might cost us little or nothing, and sometimes even benefit us too in unexpected ways. And the problem is that a lot of times we we don't feel comfortable asking for help. And so other people who would be glad to pitch in and support us, they don't know what we need, they don't know who they could help, and so... There are all these missed opportunities for these kind of five-minute favors and productive acts of generosity to happen. And so the reciprocity ring disrupts that. And the, the basic exercise is you gather a group of people in a room, or now there's a Give a app to do it online. And everyone makes a request for something they want or need, but can't get on their own. And then you challenge everyone else in the group to try to use their knowledge or their networks to fulfill the request. And that's it. Everybody asks and everybody tries to give. And uh, I, I wrote about this in, in my first book, Give and Take. And I had done some research around it and uh, got a call one day from Good Morning America asking if they could cover it. And so we'd gathered a group of MBA students to do a version of the exercise. And one of the requests that a student wrote on a flip chart when I was walking around the room was, my dream is to shadow Dave Chang for a day. <laughs> <And> I, <was laughs> like, I my mind was blown. Because as of, this was a Monday night, As of the previous Friday, Dave, I'm embarrassed to say I had never even heard of you. Completely reasonable. Which I know. I'm like living under a rock somewhere, right? No,
0: no, no. You should not know what we do. You're doing more important things.
1: No, no. I just, I'm the opposite of a foodie.
0: Is there a term for that? Yes, and we'll get into that because that was, it explains everything as to why you don't, (laughs) you have good reason not to like food. So the amazing part for me, though, was that that Saturday...
1: You and I had, had met at a conference, ended up having dinner together, and I was struck immediately by your generosity and your curiosity. And so when I saw the request, I thought, what the hell? Let me text Dave, see if he's free. And then we've got a room full of about 70 people, and the, the Good Morning America cameras running for a tape piece. Let me see if I can get him on the phone live to see if he'll fulfill the request. And you actually answered, and you offered to spend not just a few minutes, but a whole day letting one of our Wharton MBA students shadow you. Incredible.
0: And she came up like a month later. Uh, We filmed a little bit in the morning, and I tried my best to help her out with anything as she's graduating this year. And um, Jenny was her name, right? Yeah. It was great. And I didn't realize that I had read a couple of your books before we even met. And you have one book on um, giving and taking, and then you have another book on original thinking. And the last book was about... Resilience. Resiliency, right. And... I didn't realize who you were until I met you, but I had obviously read your works. And then I was like, oh my God, we're having dinner and we're at eating sushi. And you're like, Hey, actually, I don't really want to eat this. And you're very forthright. Like, I just want to eat things that, um, how should I say? You have a super taster. You're actually one of the people that have, what is it on your tongue that makes you taste something? I can't remember the scientific term.
1: I think, I mean, look, I'm no expert, so I'll defer to you, Dave, but What I was told when I took the test was that I had, a, I guess, a high density of
0: taste buds on my tongue.
1: Yes. So I have like extra taste buds. Does that sound right?
0: Yes, that's it. I was trying to come up with the actual like the taste bud itself, the scientific name. But there are people out there and uh, Adam is one of them where you have this heightened sense of taste where like cooks like to add a lot of acidity and salt in their food. And these are all things that you don't love too much you told me the perfect paradigm for food would be like sweet and sour chicken,
1: right? Yeah, I, I basically eat like a five-year-old. Yeah, so. <laughs> and I was so curious. <laughs> all night long, I kept done asking
0: you questions because I was like, oh
1: my God. You're like, who is this guy? What's wrong with him?
0: And I didn't say what was wrong with you. I was like, wow, this is amazing. You actually didn't want to taste anything. And then desserts came and you basically housed all things sweet. And I was like, this is remarkable. Who is this
1: person? <laughs> Wait, I was hoping you didn't notice that I ate everyone's ice cream. <laughs>
0: No, I definitely did. That was so good. And uh, I was like, this person's taste buds are more fascinating to me than your career, which is incredibly <laughs> fascinating, but that's just me. And uh, I don't want to waste everyone's time, but basically I was trying to figure out the flavor profiles and the things that Adam found to be delicious. And I'm going to crack the code one day. But ultimately, it's it's like one of the reasons why I think chefs smoke cigarettes is because they're trying to kill their taste buds, so they can add more seasoning and flavor. And Adam's on the opposite end, where anything that you might detect on your tongue is like way too extreme. And I've been thinking about how do I craft a meal that he's going to love from start to finish. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do that one. And here day. I
1: am, just <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out how not to offend a famous beloved chef by not tasting anything he cooks.
0: No, and we we had a fascinating conversation about not just food about organizations? Because that's what you do though, right, Adam? You are technically by training many things, but organizational psychologist? Guilty as charged. What is that? And I mean, your, your CV as to how this all happened is pretty crazy. Can you do a quick run through? Like you graduated in college pretty early. You You went to all the schools and you're like the youngest tenured professor at University of Pennsylvania and you have like the most popular class. You're beloved by the students. When I was reading about you, I was like, man, who is this person? All right. Besides having this crazy palette, <laughs> what is exactly what you do? Well, I, I'm not actually entirely sure.
1: <laughs> Sometimes people hear organizational psychologists and, and they think, wait, so can you, can you organize my closet? Can you get my desk in order? No. I basically study psychology at work. And so I uh, try to figure out how to make jobs more meaningful and motivating, teams more creative culture is more productive and supportive. And so anything in the realm of people at work just fascinates me. And I guess, you know, at some level I grew up, well, I grew up having a lot of free time because I hated chocolate and green vegetables. And uh, like cilantro is the nastiest taste I could think of other than coffee. And so like, I felt like a lot of my friends, like they would get into new foods and they'd spend a lot of time tasting them and hanging out in restaurants. And I was like, what else am I going to do? So I guess I got struck really early on that most people spend most of their waking hours at work. And yet very few of us find our jobs meaningful and and motivating. And I wanted to try to fix that in part because I think pretty much every major advance that's ever happened in human society was fueled by people in jobs working, at least in, in the last couple hundred years. And so it seemed like a worthwhile way to spend my career to figure out how to make other people's careers more worthwhile. And you knew that from an early age, though. I didn't know how I was going to do it. But I knew like, I, knew I hated being asked, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because I didn't want to be anything. I wanted to do lots of things. And eventually, uh, when I took my first org site class in college, it clicked that my job could be to study other people's jobs. Whatever I was interested in, I could go into that world and experience that job vicariously.
0: And you have analyzed a lot of data, a lot of different professions, and you come with a lot of different ideas that I wouldn't say are not conventional, but you're challenging your ideas. I feel challenge convention of how you operate, how you run. And I found it fascinating because uh, everything that you say, and I'm not going to explain your entire philosophy and, and your work, because I feel that anyone that might be listening should endeavor to do that themselves. But it seems like it's advice and management techniques that people feel are better suited for like corporate america but i was thinking that a lot of things that you say about being selfless about being a better leader these are things that need to be listened to by my profession in the culinary world particularly by chefs and i would love to have more cooks read your work because i feel that's the one part of our jobs that often gets overlooked which is why we're in a lot of problems today in 2018 so I guess what I'm trying to do and 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 doing a terrible job doing it is like summarizing a lot of your beliefs about organizations. Like what are the, what makes a great leader, right? Ultimately, because that's what a chef is. And I have a hard time explaining to people that it's more than just cooking. And do you find that's the case with basically any business that it's not necessarily about what they're making or selling? It's about everything else.
1: Yeah, I do. So I'll give you an example. I want to I turn the tables on you because I've been extremely <laughs> curious about how you think about fixing restaurant kitchens and changing the behavior of some chefs that maybe we don't look up to every day. So one of the things I noticed early on was everybody knows a bad leader is somebody who keeps their people stuck in the same job and never lets them grow or develop. And we think, hey, you know, a good leader is somebody who creates those opportunities and tries to find out, okay, what are the people working for me want to learn? How can I give them new opportunities for skill development and mastery? And I'd kind of stopped there until I started doing research on on this topic. And I actually found that the great leaders went a step further. And they created opportunities for their people to grow and develop, even if it meant leaving for another organization. And at first, you're like, wait, that's totally backward, because why would you let your best talent go out the door? And there were two answers that came out of the data. The first one is that when you promote people, even out of your own organization, you engender a tremendous sense of loyalty. And so, you know, often they'll boomerang and come back to you. They'll refer other people to you because you've shown that the thing that matters even more to you than your own organization's success is the success and well-being of the people who work there. And I hear a lot of leaders say, like, wow, people are the most important resource in my company. And every time I hear that, my response is, no, people are your company. (laughs) And so you see the loyalty, but you also see that you just attract better talent if you have a reputation for doing what's best for your most talented people. And so, you know, I would say one thing I would expect a great chef to do is actually elevate their people into great chefs and open doors for them and help them build their careers and their success. And I don't see enough chefs doing that. So tell me why not and what it's going to take to change that.
0: Mm. Well, I thought that this podcast would turn into you asking me questions because you're better at this than I am. And also you have a a fantastic podcast as well. In relations to the why chefs don't celebrate the people that work for them more is I think most of that is stuck in the idea of how we've inherited this profession. So much of how we cook is based on the French Brigade and this old school system by Escoffier. And it was about keeping things secret, keeping things proprietary and a very different way of how you mentored someone. Basically, if someone worked for you, they worked for you for like five, 10 years. There was very little room to maneuver around. And I think that's just something that we continue to foster. The idea that the chef is this mythic-like figure, that they do everything. And it's celebrated in all the awards that a great chef can win are almost always these singular achievements. But in my opinion, even if you have a restaurant of just like one person, quite frankly, it's a celebration of team. Like To me, what I love most about cooking at its very best, it's this weird motley crew of individuals that somehow can find a unique vision that they all believe in and they can work diligently to get there when all odds are stacked against them. And I see that in any kitchen that operates well. And yet, more and more times, it's hard to celebrate the people that actually do the work because the chef takes all the credit. I've been guilty of that, even though I've tried my best throughout my career to tell people, like, I get way too much credit. And the second thing besides sort of the history of why chefs take too much credit is I think it's the media. I'm not blaming the media, but it's easier for people to tell a narrative that it's one creative genius. And the word genius is something I'm very allergic to in the culinary world. So I think it's a mixture of those two things and understanding food and understanding how organizations work in a kitchen are still virgin territory. Very few people have actually tried to understand why things are the way they are as an organization. So those would be my three ideas as to why you don't see it more often. There's ego and there's history and there's just how it's perceived. It almost
1: seems like a lot of chefs, at least from what I catch on TV and the, the handful that I've met and only later realized who the hell they were, do you think that, that chefs believe you have to treat people like dirt
0: in order to be successful? That's how I learned how to cook. I really did. Really? Yeah. That reckoning is real. And, and I learned how to treat people like dirt because I wound up treating people like dirt. And my friend, Chris Ying, says that like, my success is similar to a Roomba vacuum. I don't know exactly what I'm doing, but I'm going to make every mistake possible and not do that again. And my leadership style, I feel that has evolved from that, from learning how I was treated and I saw was successful in a kitchen, which was a lot of yelling, a lot of just intensity. People, I feel like, forget that the military system created the culinary system that many kitchens use today. Literally, the French brigade, the French military system was the organizational chart that the culinary world copied. So because of something like that, you're going to have problems over time. And the whole idea that you could be thoughtful, rational, empathetic, and patient were not virtues that I learned until I realized that I was a terrible leader. And my drive as a person is to get better continuously, not just as a cook, but as a person. So I think it's been a little bit different for me because I didn't know any better, but I saw that how I behaved and how I acted and how I treated people, there were many better avenues. I just didn't know what and how to get there.
1: I find that so surprising, Dave, because I I guess in some ways it's a dynamic I've written about a little bit where a lot of people are, are givers with their friends and family at home but then at work, they had adopt a much more selfish kind of taking mentality. Mm. Uh, but you, like, you're such a caring person. It's hard <laughs> to imagine you making such a dramatic shift. Do you remember the moment when you decided that that was the way you had to be professionally? And then the moment where your eyes sort of opened to the fact that you didn't?
0: It's strange. Like, you talk a lot about procrastinators, and I am one of those individuals. Like, I work really well in high-stress environments which doesn't make any sense because by nature, I'm an incredibly anxious, incredibly anxious person. Just ask my wife. It it can be intolerable. And when I'm put into a high stress, really tense environment of kitchens, as much as I dislike it, I thrive personally. I work better. That's not who I was as a person. As an individual, I changed because I started to cook. By nature, I'm a wallflower and I'm pretty passive and I don't want confrontation, And the more I started to cook, things changed. And then when I started a business, I never was a manager of people. Ultimately, it was my inability to communicate, to see what was around the corner. And cooking is something that is so hard in and of itself. And then when you operate a restaurant, everything that can go wrong does go wrong every day. And it doesn't pay that well. And it's a labor of love and all of these things. And, and what I've seen more often than not, and I definitely was cut from this cloth, is you don't know what the answers are, so you get really frustrated and you feel like you're besieged by all fronts by anything that's trying to like, hurt you. And you're just trying to keep your head above water. And all of that creates anxiety and frustrations. And I was just not ready to handle it, really. Like I don't think I was, as a person, someone that likes to yell at people. Or express my frustration when, like, I would used to punch walls when someone didn't do something right. Wow. And, like, have a very famous temper. And i it's a temper that I have acknowledged. But the thing is, is, like, besides my own, like, mental illnesses and all the other neuroses that I have, from a get-go, I knew that it wasn't appropriate. And I knew that I had to find a way. And for a long time, I thought that was, like, through alcohol or drugs. And that wasn't right. So I knew... Early on in my mid-20s, early 20s, like 25, I started to see a psychiatrist and get help. And, you know, over 15 years, it's been, oh my God, how am I? More than that now, Jesus. Trying to figure out why I get angry at something. And it was all new to me because my anger that I acted out on people in kitchens was not who I was as an individual. So it was a very shock to me. And that's just me. I can't speak for anyone else that loses their temper I mean, I could talk forever about this, but the reality is, Adam, like I wasn't good enough and I wasn't prepared. And I can see how most of that responsibility is on me, but I've actually been able to isolate why I get angry. That's been years of therapy. And the reason why is I want to not just get better as a person and improve, but I want to be a better leader. That's always been part of my goal. I just was always frustrated. and didn't know how to do it. I don't want to talk forever about that, but I don't know if that no, illuminates anything for you.
1: It's actually funny that you you bring this up because yesterday in class, we were talking about the idea of an amygdala hijacking. I don't know if you've have you heard that term before or, is, no. or am I speaking in code here? I have no idea what that is. All right. So if you look at the neuroscience of fear, one of the things you'll see is it seems to be located heavily in this part of the brain called the amygdala, which is often referred to as the lizard brain. It's really primitive and it's responsible for very fast, visceral, emotional responses. And there's a lot of speculation that we evolved an amygdala early on so that, you know, if prehistorically you were walking through the jungle, you wouldn't be like, huh, I see something moving in the bushes. It appears to be uh, having sharp objects protruding from its mouth and it has orange and black stripes. I wonder if it's a tiger, right? The the purpose of the amygdala is for you to immediately see that and go, tiger run! <laughs> and then you survive and pass on your genes. And I think the problem that a lot of us face in in organizational life is we are capable of being amygdala hijacked by things that are not survival relevant. Right. Where somebody disappoints us or offends us and, you know, we fly off the handle. And so one of the ways that I like to work with leaders on dealing with this is to identify your emotional triggers. So what are the things that consistently cause you to lose control? And then put together a little script for how you want to respond when that happens. And if you practice the script enough, it can become a little bit more second nature and maybe, you know, you're able to <laughs> to at least temper your reaction a little bit or temper your temper, even if you don't eliminate it altogether. So I was curious when once you identified what would cause you to get angry, what did you do about it?
0: Well, the funny thing is, is it was not something I identified. And I've been seeing the same psychiatrist for years, over 15 years. And so much of it was trying to understand what was happening in my life, my own sort of depression and and stuff that I was fighting through. But one of the things that I could not unravel was how I behaved in the kitchen. I just was so shocked. And it was probably 24 months ago when we had this sort of breakthrough. And that's how long therapy (laughs) was for me as to, like, why I would get angry at something. Like, I literally wrestled with this until finally my doctor was like, okay, like, I think this is what we have, more or less. And maybe he knew, but— I think basically he knew what was wrong with me, but he was waiting for me to be at a level where I could handle the diagnosis. And he said, I have affected dysregulation of my emotions. And that's tied into a lot of different things for me. And essentially, I was able to sort of find a correlation as to whenever I would get crazy upset. And my kind of upset is zero to 60 almost instantly when I see someone doing something wrong. And that wrong is actually something that for the most part, no one should get this upset about, right? I couldn't understand why I couldn't control my my rage at something, and it wasn't like if someone was doing something egregiously wrong. They were most oftentimes the things that were minutiae, like not labeling something right, not condensing one container properly, not sharpening your knives. Things that are really small, detail-oriented things that ultimately don't matter too much, and. There's another sort of level of that, but like that's the best way for me to describe what would trigger this like incredible Hulk-like rage. Or ultimately when I saw someone not care. Anytime I saw someone or an event or an action where someone didn't care enough as much as I did, I would just go crazy. And one of the reasons why I love cooking was it was the one thing that couldn't fail me. And Mm -hmm. obviously I have a lot of trust issues and relationship issues that I'm still working through. But one of those side effects was I have a hard time finding meaning in something unless like anything I basically have found meaning in it sort of had failed me or, or my platonic ideal or something. And cooking was the one thing, I guess, along with sports, because I played a lot of competitive golf that I was not talented at. But if I worked really hard at it, it gave me meaning. And I started to cook because... Truth be told, as ridiculous and hyperbolic as it sounds, like I found it to be truthful, right? It wasn't about making money. It was if I do something really well, no one can take that away from me, right? Like I inherently know that all I've done through sheer will and having integrity, I didn't take any shortcuts and doing it the right way turned into something that was delicious and useful and practical. And as crazy as that sounds, that was like my operating system. And it gave me confidence, and cooking was something that sort of saved my life. And I was a bumbling cook too, right? And I was never a sous chef or a manager. And then it happened a little bit when I started to train other people at restaurants when they wouldn't do it right. And it's not necessarily do it the way that I told them, but I could just see that they didn't care. I would have more of a temper. And then opening a restaurant and numerous times feeling like we narrowly averted disaster or just the end of the business itself. I had a lot of these things where I just felt like I had nothing but frustration and rage at everything. And every time it happened, the thing that triggered it was someone didn't care about something. And ultimately, you know, this is how much like time and thought I've put into it because it's just not acceptable. I would hit something. I would punch a wall or a heavy metal object to hurt me because I learned that the only way for me to get back into like a normal sanity, more or less, like I guess my doctor said, it's sort of like, some state of psychosis, weirdly. Like the pain is something that hurts so much that it brings me back to reality. Wow. Yeah. I mean, like it's real shit and I've tried so hard to get better at it. And what I've realized is what I've done is I let people know that these are situations that like trigger something in me. So I'm going to try everything in my power to not go down that road. But if I do, you need to like pull me aside and say, like, get my head out of my ass. I'm trying to get to a point where, like, I don't have to, like, hurt myself to, like, have a sense of self again. So wow, it's a real battle for me. I have these urges all day long, especially when I'm a kitchen, and I have to refrain from going down that road and just letting it wash over me and just accept it, realizing that my anger actually hinders the result. The end result, what I want is a great kitchen and people to be motivated and to have ownership. And if I intervene like a jackass, I'm going to unravel it all. So I don't know what else more to say about that because that's like 15 years of the making to just talk about that.
1: Wow. There's so many things that this sparks for me. The first one is, it seems like when we study emotional triggers, most often they're related to people's identities. And so, you know, it seemed like you'd built this really clear identity around cooking and saying, you know, this is something that that I can do extremely well and that nobody can interfere with. And so when somebody did try to mess with that, that's a real threat to your sense of self. Yes. Another thing that comes to mind as I listen to how you've grappled with this is, I think, of course, when people have extreme reactions to these emotional triggers, that we want to see them learn to manage it, which I applaud that you've, you've been so introspective and, and open about that. There's also, though, there's at least some evidence suggesting that it's helpful to share your triggers with other people. And let them know, hey, these are the things that caused me to fly off the handle, and then they're less likely to push your buttons, and they're also more likely when you know when you do lose control to say, hey, like you know, this is something that really bothers you, like maybe it's not me. Did you actually end up having those kinds of discussions with your team at any point?
0: Yeah, I've done that. I'm doing it more and more. Like two incidents when we open up Major Domo, I told a lot of my staff like I was more comfortable because this is so hard to even talk about, right? You don't want people to know. How crazy you are, but I knew that I was working with a bunch of individuals and I wanted them to be like I'm not trying to create an environment where you should worry I'm simply telling you that I'm learning how to control myself a little bit better and I want to be constructive but it's not about rationalizing if it does happen but like if it does happen this is what I think you need to do and it was not easy for me to talk about and I basically said like pinch me or do something or whatever I don't have the ability to articulate what it is. Cause I still don't know. All I know is you need to like wake me up and realize like, this is not reality and you need to like chill out. And I tried my best to convey that. And, um, you know, it hasn't been perfect. There are times when I I've lost my temper and I just feel so defeated because it's, I liken my anger and how I feel to, I have friends that have gone to rehab for drug addiction or any kind of addiction And uh, or Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've seen them fall off the wagon. And I can have really long stretches where I don't lose my temper. But when I do, I feel defeated like someone that's started drinking again. And it sucks. But I have to pick myself up and do it again. And recently, we were just opened up this restaurant called Bong Bar. And um, there's a lot of things I wanted to ask you about that too, because I think that there's a lot of different Interesting points that I wanted to ask you about, but before it opened up with two of my chefs, I long story because there was miscommunication. I lost my temper, and I didn't yell, but I didn't make the situation better by like not being calm about it. And it was something that in the past I probably would never have even addressed. It was not that big of a deal, and what I realized was I can't rationalize that to myself, and I'm pretty sure that whoever I was speaking to it might be upset because they feel like they let me down. And I pulled everyone aside and I took the conference room and I said, listen, guys, I'm upset because this happened. I want you to know that this anger that I have is not directed at you or anyone else. It's mostly at myself because I didn't prepare us better. So I apologize that this happened and it's not an excuse. I own it, but I'm trying to get better. And it was the first time where like, wow, I was able to explain my actions almost immediately after. I didn't have to wait like two weeks or a week, which is oftentimes what I've been trying to do. It was, I'm going to handle this right now. And I felt great about it. Not that I I screwed up, but I realized that I have to be better. And the best thing I've realized is being transparent and open. And as long as I show that I'm trying to get better, that's the best thing that I can do.
1: It's it's so, I want to talk more about that because it's, it's so unusual to, to see anybody, let alone someone with your profile and visibility, be that open and vulnerable. And um, part of what, what's interesting to me about how candid you are is it seems like we're living in a place and certainly at a moment societally where there's no stigma around physical illness, right? If somebody gets sick, they go to the doctor right away. It's widely known. But mental illness, people don't talk about No. And you've obviously overcome that barrier. How how did you get so comfortable being an open book
0: like this? You know, it's funny. Like I was never this way. It just was over time. You know, opening up Momofuku was tied to a lot of my own issues as a person. And then the thing that superseded a lot of it was just survival. And what I realized, and I think this sort of has something to tie with when you talk about procrastinating in the moment, like... What I feel like when I put myself in these situations, to be honest, because I'm so busy, is because it's the same sort of clarity when I have when I do something under the gun of time. Like, I begin to see what's important, what's not important. I don't have time to talk bullshit. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I'm just too busy. It's almost like wearing the same clothes every day because you don't want to worry about it anymore. And like over time, I just was like, (laughs) you know what? We have an open kitchen and what you see is what you get. And we just have to be brutally honest. And over time, I just was like, there's no bullshit. I just have to say what's on my mind. And that was it. Weirdly, the idea, I guess, to be honest as possible was out of sheer laziness. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I love I love that you're like hey I'm I'm too busy to hide what's really going on in my head.
0: Yeah. And also like I didn't care. At some point you just stopped caring. It's amazing. And like I I feel like at least for myself if you continue to like work at it, I just became more comfortable talking about myself. And if you spend enough time in therapy, you're just like it is what it is. Like I don't care anymore. I'm just going to own it. Am I being crazy like
1: No, not at all. I think it's incredibly interesting and in psychology, there's this huge body of research on what's called self-enhancement, which is all the, the ego-driven things we do to puff ourselves up. And there's a smaller body of work that says, yeah, but we also have these motives to self-verify, which is not about looking good. It's actually about expressing who you really are and being seen accurately as opposed to positively. And one of the things that I have found intriguing and has, <laughs> has got me thinking a lot is we actually prefer to be in, in relationships with people who see us in kind of realistic terms, as opposed to just having a glowing opinion of us. And so I wonder if part of what's happening is, as you open up more, you end up expressing more authenticity. You feel like other people get to see the real you, and that causes them to open up more, and you end up with deeper connections than you would if you were just kind of uh, putting on a game face all the time.
0: I feel like you know exactly what's going on. And I tried to make that very clear in my organization. We're far from being where we want to be at. But the line that I continue to repeat more often than not to my chefs that are learning how to be a chef, I was like, stop worrying about cooking. It's not about that anymore. (laughs) It's about all the other things. And it is always met with resistance. It's like, what is this guy talking about? But I really believe that. Communication is the most important tool you can have, better than learning how to have the best knife skills or the best baking skills. If you can't communicate as a chef, you are screwed. So I just always try to find some correlation. If, if I can be honest about my shortcomings, maybe that can bring the group together better. But ultimately, our goal is to make the best shit possible. We don't have time to like worry about nonsense.
1: Yeah. Cool. So you wanted to talk about some dynamics of opening a new restaurant and leadership. What was on your wish list? I, I realize I'm monopolizing this conversation. No,
0: no, 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 no. Like, shit, there's so many things I'd ask. But like, I realize that I should have programmed something a little bit better for the time that I have with you. But do uh, you feel like the move towards efficiency in organizations is going to be like the end of organizations? Gosh, I hope not. <laughs> I, I feel like,
1: <laughs> I mean, I... I'm always hesitant to try to predict the future, but I feel like most of my career has been spent trying to demonstrate there are ways to be successful and care about people. And anybody who thinks that to run an organization, they have to choose between results and relationships or between efficiency and kindness, to me is just looking at the world in an overly simplified way mm. to say that, yeah, you know, in the short term, like in a given situation, sometimes there is a trade-off. Are you going to take the time to listen to a personal problem that one of your employees brings in? Or are you going to focus on getting your work done? Of course, we all face those kinds of moments. But in the long run, what I find over and over again is that the people who invest in showing care and trust are the ones that end up with stronger relationships. They end up with more motivated teams. I guess that doesn't always improve the output that you generate in terms of quantity or productivity, but quality goes up a lot. Mm. And you get a lot more creativity as well. And so efficiency for me is the wrong focus, right? I think that if your organization is trying to be just efficient, then you look to me a lot like a slave to Wall Street and quarterly earnings and very short-sighted pressures, as opposed to saying, look, I want to contribute something meaningful to the world. And that's about being effective, not efficient. Don't get me wrong though, Dave. Inefficiency drives me crazy. I hate wasting time. But I think that most leaders ought to broaden their definition of what's a good use of time.
0: Hmm. I'll give you an example that I'd love your insight on is I see it again, time and time again, it's something I've spoken quite a bit on this pod is I feel like creatively we live in a world, at least on the culinary end, and I'm sure that other people have it in their fields is that people don't want to actually make the mistake. They want to edit, they want to like game plan They want to do all the scenarios before actually putting in any of the work. And they want to go directly as the crow flies towards efficiency and remove any obstacles. And while very efficient, I actually believe that's the worst thing that we could possibly be doing right now because how do you know what the mistakes are unless you actually do it? And people want to avoid making mistakes. People don't want to look like they're being dumb. And I don't know how to encourage people to just fuck up more without being ridiculed. (laughs) So
1: one of my favorite studies was done by Amy Edmondson in hospitals, where she was looking at this idea of creating psychological safety, where you feel like you can take a risk without being punished. And that means, you know, if you see a problem or you have a concern, you can speak up and you know nothing bad will happen to you. And the original study was, was looking at how much psychological safety existed in different teams around a hospital and then tracking their medical error rates. And the data suggested that the more psychological safety you had in the team, the more errors teams made. And you start to wonder what's going on here. Are these teams, because they're, you know, they trust each other, they feel comfortable with each other, are they not holding each other accountable? Are they not double-checking each other's work? And does that allow mistakes to get through? But then Amy realizes there's a little wrinkle in the data because the errors are reported by the teams themselves. And so she doesn't know how many errors they're actually making. She just knows how many errors they're admitting. Mm. And she gets an observer to go in covert and actually evaluate independently the errors made. And the relationship reverses. It turns out in the teams where you have that sense of psychological safety, people report more errors, but they make fewer. What happens is because they feel like it's safe to speak up when they did something wrong, they admit the mistake. And then people are not only able to fix it, they're also able to learn from it and prevent it. And so I spent a lot of my time working with organizations on how to create that sense of psychological safety. And... It usually starts with making it really clear that people can bring up problems. And the easiest way to do that is in your role as a leader, you actually admit your own weaknesses and your own flaws. So there are a lot of different ways to do this. But anytime you you get together with the group of people who work under you, and you say, hey, here are the things that I screwed up last week. Here are the mistakes I've made. Here are the weaknesses I'm working to overcome. And I'd love more feedback on how to do that you send a very clear message that it's okay to, you know, to challenge and criticize you. And that leads people to do more of it if you show that you're sincere about it and take action on it. It also leads people, though, to try to work on their own improvement and progress as well. So love to see those kinds of leader expressions of humility.
0: But how do you explain to people that as a leader, and I can imagine a lot of chefs going through this, like, hey, you guys all want to do it this way? and it's sensible, we're going to do it this way, which makes no sense. And it's absurd. How do you convince people that it's (laughs) just not ego that's driving the decision, but you want to do something that's inefficient for a better result? Like, I don't know if that makes any sense. It's so hard to explain. No, it does.
1: It does. I mean, I think one of your challenges is being an original thinker. In most organizations, conformity is rewarded and people are comfortable doing things the way they've always done them. So I guess one way that I would think about getting around that is to say, part of your job as a leader is to create a learning organization. And a learning organization is where we don't always do things the way they've been done in the past. We say, hey, the only way to learn is to try new things and to run experiments on a regular basis to, to test out new ideas and see what works. And so if that's part of the cultural backdrop, if people are accustomed to the idea that, hey, we're, we're a place where we take risks so that we can learn, knowing full well that they might not always pan out, then that's kind of the lens that I use to bring up this conversation. So I'd say, hey, you know, like we've, we've been trying to create a learning organization or we want to build more of a learning organization. We know we've got to take more risks and run more experiments so that we can gain new insights. And so I realized that this might take a step backward in, in terms of efficiency, but I'd love to try this particular idea I have. And then, yeah, you know, let's figure out, like what do we need to see to figure out if it works? And then, you know, if it does, great. If it doesn't, you can all laugh at me. <laughs> and I'll, I'll admit I'll pull the Happy Gilmore line and say, like, you're right. I was wrong. You are good looking. I'm not attractive. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, you hope that everybody adopts a little bit more of that mentality. Is that something you think you could do?
0: Yeah. And I, we tried that with this recent opening. I actually charted out all the bottlenecks. Bottlenecks in terms of throughput, bottlenecks in terms of supply, every possible problem that I imagine someone that was thinking incredibly rationally and focused on efficiency would point out as, that's dumb. Why are we doing it that way? And I (laughs) explained to everyone, we are not going to do this. We're going to do the opposite. And we're going to make all the bread in-house. And they were like, well, we're going to run out. I'm like, exactly. We're going to run out because we're only 400 square feet. And they're going to be like, you want to make it to order? I'm like, yes. Like we literally did everything you're not supposed to do, which is why I said it was so dumb. But no one's ever done this before. So how do you know what's going to work and what's not going to work? So I was like, You don't. We don't. So let's just screw it up and let's get our own data and then we can reassess as we go through this. And I, I feel like I'm a crazy person trying to say this because I'm not trying to lose morale by doing unnecessarily dumb work. But the weird thing is, is making bread, I believe in my bones, improves morale, right? They're not just opening up a bag and selling it. Everyone has a higher sense of ownership. And I would rather sacrifice profitability, like short-term, to build all the cultural things that matter if this is actually going to be something that's a long-term thing.
1: Yeah. Gosh, I would love to see more leaders do that. And the other thing I think about, if I were in your shoes, when you get pushback and people are like, no, we can't break make the bread in-house. This is terrible. We don't know what we're doing. It's going to be too expensive. I'm sure you, you have a long list of objections. One of the things I, I think about often is uh, something that Chip and Dan Heath recommended in their book, Switch my favorite book on change, they say, look, one of the advantages of being in a, a team or an organization is no matter how frustrated you are with resistance to change, there are always at least a couple of bright spots, which are you know people who are doing some of the change you want to see or who are enthusiastic about the new direction. And so I think part of your opportunity is to find those people and say, all right, like who are the people that have already championed some wild ideas or some weird new directions for us? And those are your early advocates. And you go to them and you say, okay, I'd love your advice. I know there's going to be a revolt when I bring this idea up. But you have a track record for getting people on board with you know with some of your harebrained and half-baked schemes, what suggestions you have. Right. And then three things tend to happen. One is that you flatter them. Everyone loves to be asked for advice. To paraphrase Ben Franklin, we all admire the wisdom of people who come to us for advice. Because hmm. let's face it, you had really good taste. You knew to come to me. And then the second thing is perspective taking. You force them to look at the idea from your viewpoint, which makes them you know, a little bit more likely to see why it, it might have potential. And then the third thing that happens is they will often, because they've been flattered, because they've understood your perspective, they will often step up and become your advocate and try to help you make that change a reality. I don't think we're, we're thoughtful enough about enlisting those uh, you know, sometimes black sheep or original thinkers to say, hey, like, I've got this idea, come help me rally for the cause.
0: Huh. I think you should write a book for the culinary world.
1: (laughs) I don't know. I I could not be less qualified. No,
0: you are exactly qualified because you can see this with an objective eye. And like the one thing that like, and I want to get you out of here, but like one of the conversations that we have a lot with my peer group is burnout, something that you talk about because people are constantly pouring themselves and giving. That burnout rate is high. And I sort of make this correlation with burnout and just working like a lunatic with the idea of like preservation. Like how do you convince people in a business like the culinary arts that doesn't have long-term job security, doesn't have the ability to really fill your coffers where you can work really hard and be able to provide. Like most people in this business are still living like sort of hand to mouth, yet it's been glorified as this like really cool new thing. And it's been professionalized where there's been a lot of white-collar values to help operate it better. But we have the values of a professionalized world with the economics of a blue-collar business. And I think a lot of this burnout and a lot of the stress from chefs is because they don't know how to motivate people. They actually haven't been trained to be better communicators. No one's taught them about management. And for the most part, they got to figure out how to be a leader without any like carrot to dangle in front of everyone. There's no stock options. There's no giant pay scale. There's very little incentive. So I actually would love your input one day, or maybe now it's like, what do chefs do? They're stuck in maybe one of the most difficult positions to lead because yeah. all they can do is be like, if you listen to me, I can make you better cook through your own integrity. There's no guarantee. It's a hard sell.
1: Yeah. I'll tell you where I think the problem often begins, Dave, is that they define their jobs too narrowly as chef. And that means, obviously, they miss out on lots of ways they could help and support their teams. But it also means they miss out on all these ways they can learn more broadly about what, what it means to be a good leader and a good manager. And a lot of times when I, when I come into a particular industry, people will say, well, you don't know anything about my world. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I don't know a thing about restaurant kitchens. I'm barely even qualified to eat in a restaurant. Right. So I definitely don't know your world. What I do know though is I see a lot of the same problems in every industry that I study. And so there's something you can learn from leaders who are are working in any kind of workplace. And I think what that opens up is is an opportunity whether it's, you know, reading books, listening to podcasts, watching TED Talks, choose your preferred medium. There's a huge body of evidence and experience out there about what it means to be a good leader. And the framework I would start with, given the challenges you've described in the culinary world specifically, I'd say, all right, start with Dan Pink's book, Drive. It's a whole book about the science of intrinsic motivation. And Dan reviews a couple decades of data suggesting that when you don't have giant bonuses to offer, when you can't give people these amazing promotions, one of the things you can do is you can say, look, people came to this job in part because they're probably fueled by some passion for food or for cooking, or for serving others. And there are ways that I can do a better job appealing to that passion. And so the major drivers of intrinsic motivation, to preview the insight there a little bit, are one, autonomy, giving people a a sense of freedom. And it doesn't always have to be choices about what their job is, right? It can be small choices about who they get to work with, or what they get to work on, or when they get to do their work. You can't control that, there's mastery. There's learning and development opportunities that we talked about earlier which I think can actually be used as a reward for good performance. Mm. So somebody who exceeds your expectations, you give them choices about what they want to learn. And then you actually let them get involved in you know in that area of your kitchen. And then the third, which for me is the most exciting, is purpose. To feel like your work contributes to something larger than yourself. And I think that often we know in the abstract what impact our, our jobs have, but we lack a, a chance to really see the effect face-to-face on the people that we help. And so I did some experiments years ago with a team of colleagues where we were in a fundraising call center and people were working for a university to try to bring in money for student scholarships, but they never got to meet any of the scholarship students. And so the experiment was just to have a single scholarship student come in and tell a story saying, you know, hey, I I got the scholarship funded by the work that you all do. And, you know, here's how it's changed my life. And we randomly assigned one group of callers to meet the student. A second group got a letter from him, and the third was just a control group that got nothing. And that first group that met him face-to-face for five minutes, finding out just how one person benefited from their work. They spiked 142% in weekly minutes on the phone and 171% in weekly revenue. And in follow-up research, what we found was that just even meeting one person who's touched by your work in ways you didn't realize can be enough to redesign your view of what the meaning of that job is, right? So in their case, it's not I'm harassing alumni for for money. It's I'm helping students go to school who otherwise couldn't afford it. Mm. And yeah, I think that because people love food so much, there are probably a lot of stories out there that don't get shared enough about the ways that you affect the people who love your
0: work so much. Wow, we got a lot to digest. I have one more thing I wanted to ask you and then I can let you go. But You talk about paranoia. Is there any form of paranoia that is positive, that is a a giver's perspective of being paranoid? Like, is all paranoia bad? Is it all narcissistic?
1: (laughs) Well, no, I don't think all paranoia is bad. I think paranoia becomes harmful when you carry around delusions that everyone else is out to get you. Because I think that leaves people to become cynical. And that's one of the ways that people shift from being on the giver to the taker end of that spectrum. Because if everybody's a taker, well, I've got to be a taker to protect myself. But I think there's a healthy form of paranoia that Andy Grove, who ran Intel for a long time, actually wrote about in a, a book a while back, which is when you're, you know, you're constantly looking around the corner, afraid that somebody is going to eclipse you or create something that displaces the work that you do, or that your organization does, and I think that's healthy in the sense that it destroys complacency. It allows you to to not rest on your laurels, to not say, "Hey, I've I've created something amazing and it's always going to be amazing," but to say, "I've I've constantly got to improve it and even reinvent it from time to time." You could say, like, it would be really good if Blockbuster had had a little bit more paranoia when Netflix came knocking. Right, and then maybe instead of saying, yeah, we don't, we don't need to acquire you. Like, who needs mail-order DVDs? They'd actually paid attention to the revolution that was impending. And that is tremendously motivating. We could all use a little bit of that, huh, I might not be great tomorrow, paranoia.
0: So would you still associate that as paranoia, the Andy Grove definition, or is that a different kind of paranoia? Because that seems to be all I think about. And it's never, I think, in relation to me, ultimately, <laughs> it's about whatever's around the corner is going to be bad. And I don't know what it is, but I want to be prepared for it. And I want all of us to be prepared for it so we can like be better. And it's never assuming that best case scenario is going to happen. It never happens. Yeah. So is that paranoia? Because I don't know how to teach this to people that work for me to not be crazy like me, but just to be a little bit more realistic about what might happen.
1: Yeah. Well, I probably wouldn't call that paranoia, right? I'd call that healthy anxiety. But <laughs> Grove always, I guess the way he put it was, he said, like, success breeds complacency, complacency breeds failure, and therefore only the paranoid survive. And I'd look at that and say, well, what you're really trying to do is you're, you're trying to prevent complacency, and you don't have to be paranoid. Because paranoid, by definition, is is delusional. <laughs> you you can you can avoid complacency by knowing that there are very real challenges confronting you. And um I don't know, one one thing you might try, Dave, that I've found really useful is an exercise that Lisa Bodell at Future Think runs a lot. It's called kill a company. And what you do is you spend a, a little time with your team trying to come up with ways that if you were gonna put yourself out of business, how would you do that? And people come up with a lot of, of really interesting possibilities. And then you have to turn around and say, look, some of these are real competitive threats. Others are opportunities that we should seize. And I think it's a good catalyst for reminding people that there are lots of ways to fuel growth and change that they kind of start from being on offense as opposed to defense. I think the problem is, you know, a lot of people do this defensively and they say, all right, let's run the save the company exercise. And you just get a bunch of boring, conventional risk-averse ideas. People are often more creative on offense than defense. And so, I think that kind of thinking is, is one way to kill complacency without having to feel like you're constantly paranoid.
0: I mean, no joke. That's literally like my daily meditation is like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> poor guy.
0: <laughs> I mean, I don't feel like it's a healthy way to live, right? Like, and it prevents me. And it's not just me. I, I'm not speaking on behalf of a lot of chefs, but it's that success is fleeting, that it's only as good as your last dish, and that anything is going to ultimately end you. And, It's the kind of anxiety that I think is really problematic for my peer group because it's just not a healthy, happy way to live. And ultimately, if we can't teach ourselves to be happier, there's no way we can be better chefs.
1: Yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. There's a psychologist, Julie Norum, who studies what she calls defensive pessimism, which I think you're you're sort of a card-carrying member of the defensive pessimism club. The way I've come to think about it is if you're going to think about when you're in school before you had a big test coming up, a strategic optimist would envision the perfect outcome. You're going to ace that exam. And then, you know, you're highly motivated by that positive vision and it energizes you and and you do really well. The defensive pessimist, you wake up about a week before the test in a cold sweat, afraid that not only are you going to fail the exam, you're going to do so badly that your teacher will take away points on all your previous exams. Because there's no way you would have earned those. And then that fear, that anxiety, kicks you into gear and it motivates you to study. And then you actually end up really prepared and you do just as well as the optimists. And the fun thing about that research is optimists and pessimists tend to perform equally well. But if you want to sabotage a defensive pessimist, one of the ways you do that is you make them happy. (laughs) And then they get complacent. They no longer feel that anxiety that fuels them. And so they stop working so hard. So I don't know if that resonates for you, but I definitely hear you telling that story.
0: Yeah, that's just me. You just described, like that, that's so much of me. Like, good lord, you are an incredibly busy man. So I'm so grateful and honored that you would take time out of your day to talk to me about.
1: Oh, Dave, this the honor stuff. is all mine. Thank you for having me. I will see you
0: soon, Adam. Thank you so much, man. You
1: too. Take care.
0: Got yeah, it. Bye. All right. Thanks for listening to the podcast with Adam Grant. I hope to have him on the podcast again, this time in person. But he gave a lot of books. We'll, We'll put that on the website or the Instagram page about what to read if you are so curious to follow up on how to be a better leader and how to run a better organization. So one of the things that we're doing, again, differently this year on the pod is to incorporate some more things happening in the world, uh, whether there are guides, travel tips, opinions, so on and so forth. We reported the podcast with Adam Grant uh, right after or right before Thanksgiving, but this is happening this week, what I'm recording right now. And uh, I just want to give a big shout out to the chef Moro Colagreco of Mirazor in Menton, France, which is on the border in the Riviera of Italy and France he got three Michelin stars and I couldn't be happier for him. He's easily one of the greatest, most talented chefs in the world. I got to spend a couple weeks in Japan with him several years ago with Claude Bossy and Sat Baines and Mike Anthony of Gramsci Tavern. It's, um, it was a great time to become friends with him, to be able to see how he thinks. The reason I bring up that trip was we had to cook a dinner and I got to see how he worked. And, Morrow had worked at Cote d'Or, which was the restaurant, the, the sad story of Bernard Oiseau, who who took his own life and was through Michelin star restaurant. He was there. Uh, and then he was a sous chef at Arpege under the chef Alain Passard, arguably the most important chef right now because of his influence. And he's from Argentina and he has an incredible work ethic and he is a technician of the highest order, but he's got great flavor and balance and creativity. And he's able to express food in a very natural way, certainly from a Passard school, but done in a way that is uniquely Moro's. And I've always thought of him as a chef that should have three Michelin stars. And the reason I bring up this Japan trip was I'll never forget this moment when we all had to compose a dish working with local ingredients and a new technique that we had learned because it was the stage, basically the stagia program with Kikunoi and Murata in Kyoto. And I don't even remember what I made, but I'll never forget walking into the room of the culinary school where we were prepping out. And he must have had like 20 to 30. Culinary school kids all prepping out. It was like a huge production and a brigade. And I basically had like one person. I don't remember having any more than one or two people helping me out. And Moro was essentially like conducting a symphony. It was a sight to behold, particularly since he doesn't speak Japanese. And what he was doing, I will never forget because I never seen anyone. And I do believe he might be the first person because he learned it on that trip to make dashi's out of vegetables. So kyoyasai is the vegetables that are grown in Kyoto. And I think they are the best in the world. They're sweet, they're juicy. There's no sense as to why they're so good. Turnips and strawberries and carrots, just kyoyasai is a legendary place. So we got to taste all these things and work with these ingredients. And he took carrots and apples and turnips and other kinds of radishes, and he juiced them all. And there were all these fabulous different colors. And he had five to eight different juiced vegetables. And he then clarified them a little bit by making a dashi and adding kombu. And so they were like these beautiful sort of like Kool-Aid-like colors. And then he took the vegetables that were juiced and he cut them into smaller pieces and he cooked them in their own vegetable dashi. The best way I could describe how Moro thinks about food, it was so pure, so ingenious, and incredibly flavorful. And I had never seen that technique. And I do believe he was probably the first person to make a dashi out of vegetables. I had never seen anything like that. Maybe someone had done that before, but Moro was someone I had ever known was a terrific chef, but then to see someone in the midst of uh, the ideation process and the creation of a dish was a sight to behold and and how it all came together. And that's when I was like, wow, Moro is just like way better than me. (laughs) That's just how I, that's how I felt about it then. I was like, shit, like this guy is just cooking at another fucking level. So it's not a surprise to me that Moro got three mission stars for his restaurant Mirazor, which is closed during the winter months. And he's got a few other operations and restaurants and concepts. He's a, he's a busy man, but that restaurant deserves all the praise he gets because it does a kind of food that is very meaningful to me. And it's the kind of food that I would pursue had I just tried to go down that road. And anyway, kudos to chef Moro Colagreco for three mission stars And it's something I will probably do more of, uh, a little ode to the chefs that you may not know. So look him up, follow him, check out his food. And if you do visit the Riviera in Europe, try to eat his food. It will be a splurge. It's it's certainly a detour and a special occasion, but uh, I have long admired him and his cooking abilities. And quite frankly, I love talking about chefs. So I'm happy to highlight some things that you may not know. So... Massive shout out to Morikola Greco. Thank you so much, guys. Stay tuned. Give us five stars on however you review this podcast and stay tuned for next week's. Bye.